This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us. The year was 1776. And as the story goes, one Sunday morning at his Lutheran church in Woodstock, Virginia, Pastor Peter Muhlenberg was coming to the end of his sermon on Ecclesiastes 3. And as his nephew later reported, Muhlenberg said to his congregants, in the language of the Holy Writ, there was a time for all things, a time to preach and a time to pray. But those times have passed away. There is a time to fight. And that time is now coming. He then reportedly removed his robes to reveal a military uniform marched to the back of the church and asked, who among you is with me? And the next day he let out 300 men from the county to form the nucleus of the 8th Virginia Regiment. Can you imagine a preacher doing something like that today? It's hard to imagine, but this was a very different era, that of the black robed regiment. Who were these men and what can Christians today learn from them? We're going to talk about it today with Dan Fisher. Dan is a former Republican member of the Oklahoma House of Representatives. He also ran for governor and is co-pastor of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond, Oklahoma, serving also on the organizing committee of the Gone Too Far movement, which was formed to call America back from the homosexual and gender madness of our day to a renewed repentance and faithfulness to the Lord. Now, back in 2008, Dan launched what has become his highly acclaimed Bringing Back the Black Robed Regiment presentation. And in it, he tells the amazing story of the patriot pastors of the 18th century who preached the biblical principles of liberty and government from their pulpits. And when the time came, led the men of those churches and communities off to defend those very principles on the battlefields of our war of independence. He tells the story as well in his book called Bringing Back the Black Robed Regiment. And it's just wonderful to welcome him here to the show today. Dan, it's so great to have you with us. How are you? Janet, I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you here. I have been a fan, really. Whenever I have read about the Black Robe Regiment, I thought, these guys are awesome. Why don't we have more preachers like them today? What do you think (laughs) is the problem in our day that we, I know we're not fighting a war of independence anymore, but just that kind of zeal and that kind of fire for liberty, what, what is the disconnect there? Well, you know, Janet, there's probably a lot of reasons, but, you know, Barna uh, was doing research on this very subject a few years ago, back in 2014, and he was asking pastors around America, does the Bible address the social and cultural ills of our day? And overwhelmingly, they said yes. And then he said, well, are you going to preach on those? And they overwhelmingly said no. So, So then he asked the pastors, why not? And the top two reasons that they gave were, we're afraid it'll hurt our attendance, and we're afraid that it will hurt our offerings. Oh my, yes. So that's straight from the pastors themselves, and and so I must assume then that the average pastor is so afraid of not pastoring a large church, and he doesn't want to make waves, and so he just strays away, uh, not only from, from this kind of tough stand, but they won't even preach certain passages of Scripture that, that now, if you can believe it, are considered controversial. God's Word 
it's considered controversial. Good grief. Yeah. yeah. It, we've we've really gone down a slippery slope over the last several hundred years. Well, tell us a little bit about how the Black Robed Regiment got started. Tell us a little kind of a sketch on who these men were and how they came about. Yeah, well, these guys were pastors who had cut their teeth. Some of them were boys at the time when we had what we often call our first Great Awakening. Yes. And these guys had grown up in that period of time, many of them. Now, some of the guys from the Great Awakening were still around when the War of Independence began, and so they were they were part of the Black Robe Regiment, but they were more of the senior statesmen by then. But these these men had grown up in a time where the church had been revived. You know, before the First Great Awakening, Janet, a lot of people may not realize the church in the colonies was in 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 a bad situation in dire straits. In fact, they even came up with something they called the halfway covenant because they were so hungry for new members. You could join the church and agree to what they called the halfway covenant and not even have been baptized or even claim to truly be born again. They were hoping that would come later. Just go ahead and join our churches <laughs> and then we'll we'll do the rest of it later. Wow. That's the kind of shape that the church generally was in. And then of course the first great awakening comes sweeping across the colonies. These young men then saw that. They experienced it. And then as the British stranglehold continued to tighten on the colonies, these men who had been preaching the principles of proper government and the responsibility of Christians to be engaged, of course, ratcheted up their rhetoric then because they they knew that the only hope uh, they had of being free and independent Christians and preachers and churches and not be under the domination of the Church of England was to stand up and say no. And, and of course, they exhausted every... Uh, option they could find to have a peaceful solution. And many of these preachers became so prominent that they were a part of the framers and, and what we consider often the founders. You know, you take John Witherspoon, who was the president of Princeton. He was also uh, at the the uh, convention where they voted to declare their independence and signed the Declaration of Independence. He even gives a speech there to kind of push them forward when they were wavering. Hmm. So that was the beginning. They'd been preaching these things for years. And of course, when when war breaks out, uh, they knew they had to stand. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when you mentioned the halfway covenant, if memory is serving me correctly, Dan, correct me on this, but wasn't that Solomon Stoddard who was credited with that halfway covenant? And that was Jonathan Edwards' grandfather. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, and it, isn't that sad? It is. It is. <laughs> that they were doing, but but that's the state of the church and the colonies in those days. And then, of course, everything changes with the the Great Awakening. And then, but then you have the war approaching. Of course, they didn't know it was going to be war. They were hoping it wouldn't be, but they also were willing to to take that stand if they had to. And then, when the war does break out, you've got guys like uh, Peter Muhlenberg, who is. Just he's kind of the quintessential black regiment guy, yeah. but but he represents a large number of these men, and I think that's something that that folks need to know. This was not just a small group of rabble rousers that were just kind of looking for a fight to begin with. Uh, it, this was this was was preachers from every denomination, and in my book, I even have excerpts from some of the letters that they wrote back home to their families. Uh, talking about how they they felt like they had exhausted every option 
to have some kind of peaceful solution to the the whole dilemma with the king and parliament and they knew that if their effort failed many many or all of them would would either be imprisoned or executed they knew this right. uh, so so they knew the price that they might have to pay well and you look back the pilgrims what brought the pilgrims across to the free world um the new world back back in the day in the 1600s i mean those were christians who knew what persecution was like in england but th- we're talking here about over a century later so yes. what gave these men such fire in their bones well, I I, uh, I believe they were from a time when they still believed the Bible meant what it said. Yeah, what a concept. <laughs> yeah. You know, so they, they believed God's Word. They had a deep and abiding faith and submission to the will of God. But they, but they also, Janet, they did not compartmentalize like mm, we do today. That's good. You know, today you have pastors and their congregants who kind of see their lives in two compartments the secular compartment, and then the sacred compartment. Yes. And so maybe Monday through Saturday, they're living in the secular part of their lives. And then on Sunday, they put on their Christian uniform, and they kind of perform their sacred duties. Well, this this generation of preachers and Christians saw no such thing. I mean, the idea of separation of church and state to them would have been anathema, number one. And number two, they would have looked at you with this weird look (laughs) if you'd have said, well, shouldn't we have separation of church and state? They'd have said, I don't know where that came from, but we don't know what that means, and we certainly don't agree with it. So they didn't compartmentalize. So they saw everything as spiritual, including scriptures on proper government. And engagement of the of, of the Christian, where today with this lie and myth of separation, Christians think it's almost a sin to to mix quote politics and religion. Well, they certainly do. There's a lot more to talk about. We'll take a short break and come back with Dan Fisher, his book, Bringing Back the Black Robed Regiment. Stay with us. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. Or call now 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. What happens when an abortion-minded woman sees her baby's heartbeat for the first time? Here's how a nurse describes the power of ultrasound. When she saw the picture of her baby on ultrasound and saw that beating heart, it was a defining moment that just broke her and 
she said, I just can't allow this baby to be killed. By letting a mother hear her baby's heartbeat and see her baby in her womb, she'll choose life 80% of the time. Then we were able to share the gospel. Sometimes we were able to give out a Bible if they're open and just minister to her the scientific truth and God's love. I cannot tell you how many times a baby's life is saved through ultrasound. It's just an incredible tool. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. One ultrasound is just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. Would you join Preborn in the cause for life? Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now, here's Janet. They were the prophets of liberty and truth, the Black Robed Regiment. Bringing back the Black Robed Regiment is the name of the book by Dan Fisher, pastor, co-pastor at Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond, Oklahoma, and our guest this hour. And I just find this whole story so important, especially in our day, Dan, because we are really having an attack of weakness, maybe we could say, in the pulpit, as you mentioned, the Barna statistics before, that uh, you have so many people who are saying, we want our pastors to preach on the issues of the day, the moral issues of the day, and most of the pastors are saying, no way, I don't want to lose my offering. I don't want people to leave my church. But how did the Black Robed Regiment get its name? Because clearly the British were not very fond of them, but tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, you know, actually the term was intended to be a term of derision or criticism. Uh, it, it was the term the British used. Now, they called them the Black Regiment. We've added the word robed to the, to the title today so people will know what we're talking about. Yeah. But we have to remember that in those days, practically every preacher would preach in a black robe on Sunday mornings. It didn't matter if you were Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran. They all wore these black robes. In fact, it was that robe that uh, Muhlenberg's nephew records that he pulled off in his church on January the 21st, 1776, Mm -hmm. there in Woodstock, Virginia, and revealed a colonial uniform underneath. So so they, they, they knew these preachers were the ones who were stirring things up. They were fanning the flames which is so different from our day, of course, because our preachers are doing everything they can do to put the fire out. Yes. But this, this generation, they're fanning the flames. And so the British knew they were the real problem. And Janet, after researching this for years, I've, I've come to the personal conviction that I'm not even sure there would have ever been a war of independence had it not been for these preachers. And in a moment, maybe we can tell some of their stories that would, would kind of back up that claim. So the British wanted to target them. So they, they referred to them as the Black Regiment. It was actually an, an American who was a Tory. Of course, the Tories were the ones who sympathized with the British by the name of Peter Oliver. He was a, a justice in Massachusetts. And he's the one who we believe first came up with this title, Black Regiment. Hmm. But it, it has stuck And these guys were so influential that when the colonial army was finally organized and they would send recruiters out, when they would come to a town where a black-robed preacher was there, he he would go to him and get him to do the recruiting because the black regiment preachers could recruit a lot more soldiers than the army recruiters could. Oh, man. Yeah, so that's why the British hated them. Yeah, now how many of those within the black-robed regiment actually became part of the army, the colonial army? Well, it varies. Uh, Janet, most of them remained a part of the militia. Uh, we, we have to, it's, it's kind of weird to us today because we just think of the official standing army. In those days, 
initially, we had no standing army. Uh, we had a little bit of what we would call a Coast Guard or a National Guard, but that, was, that wasn't even national. The colonies had those. They basically had militias. And it wasn't until the Continental Congress uh, decided that we needed a Continental Army and they appointed uh, General George Washington to lead that army that we even had an army. So, for instance, when the battle, the very famous battle that we call Bunker Hill, it was actually primarily fought on Breed's Hill, but Bunker Hill was the, the secondary position during the battle. There wasn't even a, uh, an official army of the colonies. That was, that was an entirely militia army. Uh, the army, quote, that fought at uh, Lexington and Concord. Those were all militia groups. So the most part of these preachers uh, were involved at the militia level. And if you've ever watched the movie, and I'm sure your listeners probably have, uh, the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson. Yes. They really make that point strong that had it not been for the militias, the regular army was just not enough. And most of these guys stayed with the militias. Now, people like Peter Muhlenberg, uh, he was, uh, became part of the regular army. See, he was recommended by George Washington and Patrick Henry to be commissioned as a colonel to raise that 8th Virginia Regiment you were talking about at the opening. Mm. And he moved right up through the ranks and was a part of General Washington's staff. And by the time the war is over, he's promoted to major general. And this is one of the reasons why John Trumbull, who painted that uh, very famous uh, surrender of Cornwallis painting that hangs in the in the Capitol Rotunda in D.C., Muhlenberg's in that picture, and his statue is in Statuary Hall. When I lead tours there, we go to the crypt, the basement of the Capitol, and we stand there at Muhlenberg's statue, and I tell his story. Wow. It's incredible. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you mentioned him, and I mentioned him at the outside of the show, but as you put in your book, and as you've talked about, there were many others as well. well who are some of the standouts, would you say, uh, of the Black-Robed Regiment that people should know about? Well, let's, let's, let's talk about two of them in particular. We could talk about many, but let's talk about Jonas Clark. Most people are familiar with the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, right? Right. But, but what they're not familiar with, normally, is where he was headed that night. He was riding to Lexington, and he rode to Pastor Jonas Clark's house. Jonas Clark was the pastor, what we'd call the pastor of the Church of Lexington, and he had been helping to train the Minutemen of that area. He and a, a, an old veteran from the French and Indian War, Captain John Parker, so they had been training these men, calling themselves Minutemen, committed to being ready in one minute to fight if need be. Well, of course, Revere, who was more than just a midnight rider, he was a part of the cause. If you read his life story, he was very much involved in the entire Son of, Sons of Liberty movement and the whole thing. He knows that Pastor Clark could probably rally the men to stand as these British have left Boston and are headed inland. So he rides to Pastor Clark's house the evening of April the 18th, 1775. Pastor Clark has two guests staying with him, John Adams, excuse me, Samuel Adams and John Hancock. Mm -hmm. And what's amazing is John Hancock's grandfather had pastored the church in Lexington years before. So when Revere rides to Pastor Clark's house, he's riding there for two reasons, to warn Samuel Adams and John Hancock that the British are headed that way, and they would most likely want to capture them and use them as pawns, you know, in, in the whole conflict, right. as prisoners of war. But secondly, he wanted to alert Pastor Clark to see if the Minutemen would fight, 
and they have a little council of war and, and you know, Revere and, and Adams and Hancock look at Preacher Clark and say, well, will the men fight? And he said, I trained them for this very hour. They will fight and if need be, die under the shadow of the house of God. Oh, wow. So that next morning, the Lexington Minutemen, about 77 or so of them, are led by Pastor Jonas Clark and Deacon John Parker, and they fight on the Lexington Green, which was what we would call the churchyard of, of Jonas Clark's church. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. So, so now the story becomes so much, so, so much richer, you know? Yeah. Oh, and then, man. Then, and then when the British go on over to Concord that, that afternoon, another preacher by the name of William Emerson the grandfather of the poet Ralph Waldo Emerson, who writes the Concord Hymn. Uh, William Emerson lives just about 200 yards away from the Old North Bridge, where the main clash of arms occurred at Concord. Uh, William Emerson is up on Barrett's Hill overlooking the Old North Bridge with the Continental Militia, encouraging them to stand their ground, and if they're going to die, let's die here, he says. Oh, <laughs> I wow. mean, you know, these guys are everywhere. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, the whole Battle of Concord and the British retreat back to Boston, 17 miles and Battle Road, as it's called today, was lined with militia groups that had heard about what had happened at Lexington. Some of those groups led by preachers, preachers in the mix all through. And they fought that running battle for 17 miles with the British all the way back to Boston. Well, I would imagine then, Dan, if you were to ask them whether or not Christian nationalism was a sin, the way many would say today, <laughs> <laughs> they might have a very different answer than you have some of these preachers uh, who would say, no, 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 this is terrible. This is terrible. Christian Christian nationalism is unbiblical. Uh, I would imagine they'd get quite a fight from the black-robed regiment. Well, these guys believed that if liberty was lost, so was the, the freedom to preach the gospel. True. And, and they did not want the church driven underground because we have to remember in England— they had the established church, which is what the First Amendment's talking about when it says Congress shall not uh, make any law to the establishment of religion. Yes. That's a clear reference to the Church of England. Yes. It's not a reference to a nativity scene in the courthouse lawn or a Christmas carol at school. Exactly. That's laughable. Yeah. But, but, the, but the British, see, understood the Church of England was their church, the Anglican church. So the king was not only the head of state, he was the head of the church. Right. And and these preachers in the colonies knew that if they did not stand up, they were going to be forced to become Anglican or imprisoned or maybe even executed. They knew this. So what they were fighting for was the freedom to preach the gospel. And oddly enough, a little over 200 and some odd years now, that's what we're fighting for today, Janet. If we don't stand up, maybe not go to war literally with guns, but if we don't stand up like these guys did, the gospel, the true gospel, is going to be driven underground here in America today. I agree with you completely on that. And that's what's so frustrating to me is when I hear these voices, even within our churches, saying, oh, freedom of religion, it's for freedom for everybody which it is under our law, but they're not understanding that, that the loss of freedom affects the preaching of the gospel. There seems to be a disconnect on that that people are not understanding today. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because they haven't been taught. Uh, Romans 13 has been completely misinterpreted, misunderstood, and then mistaught and preached. This idea of slavish submission to the government, no matter how wicked the government is, Paul says you have to submit. That is not what Paul was saying. That's not what Peter was saying. So they, they haven't been taught properly 
from Scripture. Secondly, we don't know our history. You know, when Jefferson pens the Declaration, he says that all of our laws are based upon the laws of nature, and nature is God. That's right. They understood the 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 root of all of our liberties. They come from God. We we no longer understand that. Even John Adams said that our Constitution will only work for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate. Dan, hang on a moment. We'll take a short break and we'll come back with Dan Fisher. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford Today. Sometimes you just have to go back into American history and learn some lessons that a lot of us have forgotten. We're talking with Pastor Dan Fisher about his book, Bringing Back the Black-Robed Regiment, How the 18th Century Church Stood for Liberty and Why It Must Do So Again. Dan, I want to pick up on something that you said before we went to that last break, and you were mentioning that here we have the Black-Robed Regiment, these men who understood so well back during the colonial period that if we lost our liberty, if they lost their liberty, they would also lose the right to freely preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you were saying in our own day, we are having similar problems. And yet there seems to be this misunderstanding of what Romans 13 actually means and a misunderstanding of our own history. And I'm wondering if you could expound on that a little bit and explain how it is that we have come to misunderstand both of those things. Yeah, I'd be glad to, Janet. Uh, You know, Romans 13, the first five or six verses Paul addresses government, and without going into a lengthy exegesis of that passage, most of us misunderstand the content to begin with. We we don't understand. I mean, excuse me, the context. We don't we don't understand the historical context of where Paul is writing, because most people believe well Nero was a tyrant, and he's telling them to submit to Nero the tyrant. Actually, when Paul wrote Romans thirteen, Nero was not yet the tyrant we remember him as being. He was still a relatively benevolent emperor. It wasn't until about 64 A.D. that he became the monster that we know today. So when Paul's writing Romans 13, somewhere around 57 or 58 A.D., uh, Nero is not this, this horrible tyrant. So he's not telling the Romans to submit to tyranny, number one. But number two, Paul goes to great lengths in those verses to talk about what proper government is. And proper government is that which rewards the doers of good and punishes the doers of evil. And he says, therefore, they're a minister of God. And if you disobey them, you're disobeying God. But no one in their right mind would, would interpret Paul to be saying, but if they're wicked, they're still ministers of God. And if you disobey their wickedness, then you're disobeying God. Sure. I mean, that's that's ludicrous. Yeah, and it's so, opposite of what you see in the book of Acts. Exactly. Yeah. So this whole, di- this whole idea of slavish submission 
is ridiculous. And of course, Paul talks about submission in many other places that it has nothing to do with government. For instance, wives submitting to husbands, children submitting to parents, congregations submitting to pastoral leadership. But no one interprets those passages to be unlimited slavish submission. Why in the world would we then interpret Romans 13 to be saying that? It's a good point, Dan, because I hear from different corners of Christendom today that they believe the American Revolution actually was sinful, that these Christians who participated in the war for our independence were sinning against God by fighting tyranny, which I how in the world do we get to this point where we think that that's sinful to fight against tyranny? It's upside down. Janet, it's upside down like so many other things in our culture. And I think it's all due to what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 1, where he says that when we begin to reject God and his principles, he begins to give us over to these things to the point that the third time he says he gives that culture over, he gives them over to a debased mind, which literally means a mind that doesn't work correctly. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Which Which is where we are, so when you take that then, and, and you have preachers who, who don't want to rock the boat to begin with, it's very easy then for them to say, hey, look, Paul says you've got to submit, so you've got to submit. And yet, if you, would, if you extrapolate that to, let's say, you're living in Germany in the late 30s or early 40s, would they, as a German pastor, be saying, well, you've got to submit to the Nazis, uh, concentration camps are just God's will, mm. uh, you know. No, of course not. And then, of course, if you look at Scripture, Hebrew midwives rebel against Pharaoh, right. Moses stands against Pharaoh, Esther, uh, Daniel and his three buddies, they refuse to submit. Jesus will not submit to the Sabbath uh, laws that the, the Jews had established that weren't from the Word of God. The early church refused to stop preaching the gospel. We celebrate all these people. Even in modern times, we celebrate people like Corey Ten Boom, Oscar Schindler, sure. uh, Martin Luther King, all of these ones who stood up to evil government. And then all of a sudden, Christians in America are supposed to just roll over and play dead mm. when our government starts saying, hey, if you preach that homosexuality is a sin, well, then you've committed a hate crime. And we say, oh, well, we're so sorry. So we'll tone it down. Yeah, yeah we can't do that. But I mean, that, that, that's how tyrants end up ruling is when that's people right. roll over and die. But Christians ought to know better. Well, we should know better. But remember, everything rises or falls on leadership. Yeah. And see, I believe that the holdup is in the pulpit. And there's, there's the problem. When you, when you have all the truth bottlenecked at the pulpit, then the people begin to assume certain things. You know, for instance, if a pastor never preaches on civic engagement, never, and actually will, will poo-poo it and say, well, you know, we just, we just stay away from that, people begin to assume certain things. They begin to assume that that must be what the Bible teaches. Yeah. Or if the pastor never talks about it, they begin to assume, well, I guess that's not important, or my pastor would talk about it. And it doesn't take very long because we're going against the flow anyway. I mean, you do this every day on your program. When you, when you were here in Edmond uh, at the God's Voice Conference, you know, we even talked about it. We're, we're swimming against the flow to begin with. Yes. Well, that's uncomfortable. Yes. I'd much rather have everybody patting me on the back. It's much easier to swim or paddle downstream than upstream. So these guys who are leaders have every reason to back off to begin with. And it doesn't take much for them to say, okay, we won't. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's so true. Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about the words, for example, in the Declaration of Independence. And we always talk about, you know, where Jefferson wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, et cetera, et cetera, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. But but you go down a little further, Dan, and it says that whenever any form of government becomes <laughs> destructive of these ends, it yeah. is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, et cetera. How come we don't talk more about the third sentence, there were the third clause of that second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, because clearly this was the mentality that was going on during the time of the Black Robed Regiment. These men yeah. understood that. Well, I think the reason we're silent is self-evident. True. <laughs> I mean, <you> know, <laughs> to use a, a word, yes. I mean, yeah, there's the problem. The second thing is, Janet, I don't think we, we really realize what a representative republic is. Oh, good. See, most, most people say, well, Paul and Jesus, they didn't say anything about going against the government. Well, they weren't living in a representative republic. They were living under a dictatorship. That's there's right. very little you can do. Right. But here, government derives its power not innately, it derives its power from the consent of the governed. Right. And then, you know, Lincoln emphasizes the Gettysburg Address, for instance, government of, by, for, the people. Right. And, and so we, we've somehow begun to believe that our rights come from government and that government's in charge. Actually, our rights come from God, given to the people. The people are in charge, and we institute governments to protect our rights. And when those governments become improper, we no longer have a responsibility to submit, but actually have the right, Jefferson says, and the duty in the Declaration to either alter, abolish, or to throw them off. Yes. Of course, throw off means you've waited too long and they're now a tyranny. That's what we have the responsibility to do. You know, in my book, there, there are many excerpts from these pastors that preach these election sermons, if you can believe that, election <laughs> sermons. And, Does the IRS them, know about that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but one of them was preached by Samuel West in 1776 to the Massachusetts legislature. And so what they would do with these election sermons, after the elections, they'd gather up all of the, the, the people who are going to be in government, they'd bring a preacher down to the legislature, and he'd preach for an hour or an hour and a half, warning them that they're going to give an account to God. Oh and in that sermon to the Massachusetts legislature in 1776, he warns them against slavish submission to tyranny and says that is actually a sin. Isn't that something? Incredible, sir. Oh, man. And you make such a good point when you talk about the fact that we live in a representative republic, because that is such an important point, especially in light of Romans 13 and how people tend to take that out of context or misapply it. We need to understand what our form of government is and why it matters. And do we need a black-robed regiment today? We'll tackle that question when we come back. Dan Fisher, my guest on Janet Mefford today. We'll be back in a moment. Janet Meffer today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Well, my name is Dan Steiner, and I'm the president of Preborn. Ultrasound truly is a game changer. When a mom comes into a pregnancy center under pressure to abort her child, perhaps the dad's gone, perhaps her mother is pressuring her. Most of the time in her heart, she doesn't want to abort, but what she needs is something that will give her the strength to choose life against the pressures that are forcing her to consider abortion. That's the ultrasound. If she hears her baby's heartbeat and sees that baby on ultrasound, 
Everything's different. Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. One ultrasound is just $28, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved, and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Janet Mefford today. Dan Fisher, my guest, co-pastor of Fairview Baptist Church of Edmond, Oklahoma. He is an author and has so many things to his credit, formerly with the Oklahoma House of Representatives, and also has a presentation on bringing back the black-robed regiment, also the name of his book, which we've been discussing this hour. Dan, you've said if today's church does not stand as our founding generation stood, we will not only lose our republic, but our liberties as well. What are your biggest concerns along those lines? Well, uh, Janet, my my biggest concern is the church itself. I mean, we can look at the government, whether it's at the state level where I served or at the federal level, and we know there's plenty of problems. My gosh. Yes. uh, How could we ever straighten those out? I believe that that's all a reflection of the people. You know, even Benjamin Franklin, who is not seen as the most religious of the group of the framers, said that the more immoral a people get, the more masters they have to have. Hmm, that's true. And, and so I think that all of the, the, the dysfunction in government, whether it's city, county, state, federal, is a reflection of the church. Yes. The church has stopped preaching the truth in, in practically every area that's considered politically incorrect, And because of that, we've disengaged. I mean, right now, we're fighting a battle here in Oklahoma. There's a bill that Senator Joseph Silk has introduced in our state legislature that would make abortion what it is, murder, and would make it illegal. The Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma has come out against that bill. Why? Well, because they say it's unconstitutional. Oh, good grief. But it's correct. It's murder. You've got to stop the murder of children. Of course. Can you imagine the Black Robe Regiment, from what we've talked about them so far, being worried about what some court would say? No, no. Of course not. So, see, that's my greatest concern. The watchman on the wall, which is what we Christians are, and are led primarily by our spiritual leaders, are not doing their job. 
And in, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, it's in, I believe, chapter 56, God said that his spiritual leaders of that day were like watchdogs that couldn't bark. Oh, man. <laughs> now, what good is a barkless watchdog? No good. No good. Right. Oh, man. Right. Wow. Well, you know, people will bring up, though, for example, well, back in the day, Dan, when we're talking about the black-robed regiment, that was a Christian country back then. We had mainly Christians <laughs> everywhere. And it's just not feasible for us to live in this multicultural society of ours, this pluralistic culture in which we're all living, to act like that anymore. We have to be respectable now. How, how would you debunk that? Well, the way that I would debunk that is to say, you know, that may be true. What we once were, we may no longer be. Now, I first do not believe that everybody in colonial America was a born-again Christian. Right. But I do believe that there was a a broad, across-the-board respect for the Bible, for the God of the Bible. So I do believe that that was a different time. But here's the thing. In a representative republic— What we are to do is to take our ideas, our beliefs, our convictions into the marketplace of ideas and boldly proclaim and defend those and do our very best to make certain that our government reflects those because the government is nothing more than a reflection of its people, especially in a representative republic. I mean, representative republic, (laughs) that means they represent us. Right. Um, So I would say to debunk that, it may be true that we're more pluralistic than we were in 1776, but that does not change the truth, number one. What, What was wrong then is still wrong today. What's right then is still right today. And as salt and light, we still have the obligation to fight this fight. And I think like you've said before, but I certainly say all the time, the battle that is not fought is always lost. That's right. That's right. You're not going to win the yeah. battle that you refuse to fight. That's I mean, exactly this right. This is true. And, you know, this is what is really concerning. What do you think should be preached from the pulpit right now? What is of utmost importance in our day? I think what is probably of utmost importance is the centrality of God's Word but the whole counsel of God. Amen. Not, not just the parts we like, not uh, Christian psychology, the four steps to success, five ways I can have a better business, <laughs> six ways I can have the best marriage you ever thought of. I mean, all of those things are probably proper in their own places, but what we need is the whole counsel of God. I think that is the, the greatest thing that needs to be preached, but then we need to look at the areas where we've been deficient, And just like in any other discipline, for instance, if you're an athlete and you're strong, but you're not fast enough, what do you do? Go lift more weights? No, you start working on your speed. You don't neglect the weightlifting, but you begin to focus on the area where you're the weakest. So we need to go back and look at these areas in the whole counsel of God that we have neglected and beef those back up and get our army ready to go fight again. You know, right before D-Day in 1944, for months, the American forces and British forces studied, strategized, planned for the D-Day invasion. They studied the maps. They had mock-up salt uh, topographical maps where they memorized every bridge, every river, every little hill. 
And once they invaded, they had in their minds what that terrain looked like, where the cities were, bridges. They knew it almost without even looking at a map. Well, number one, we, we've not done that as Christians. But then secondly, imagine if all they had ever done is just studied the maps, prepared, but they never invaded. Hmm. We've got to get to the battlefield eventually. Right. Right. We do. We do. But that costs yeah. something. And if you have a pastor who says, I might lose some people <laughs> and I might lose some donations, to me, that's just saying I don't fear God. I fear man more than I fear God. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what do they want to lose? The temporary uh, satisfaction or gratification that they get here or to lose the favor of God and lose the voice of God's spirit and the fire of God. I mean, here's the deal. These guys were were fired up with the Spirit of God. Even de Tocqueville, when he came to America later, and he's trying to figure out what is different about these people. And you know the story. He yeah. looked everywhere and all the grandeur and the beauty of North America, and he said, but it wasn't until I went and listened to the preachers and in the pulpit, I saw hearts ablaze with the fire and righteousness of God. And then I knew the secret to America's success. Mm. And that's not true today, Janet. No. You deal with this every day. Yep. For the most part, the pulpit is not on fire. It's soaking wet. It is. It is. And at a time when we could very well see encroaching tyranny, we've already seen the beginning of soft tyranny um, yes. on various fronts. And we don't like to talk about it because we don't want to ever imagine. But you even have President Trump declaring recently, America will never be a socialist country. You wouldn't have had to yeah. say that 50 years ago. It was unthinkable. Now it you have to say it. But what would happen if Christians refuse to rise up if tyranny does reach our doorstep? Janet, some of our leading denominations are already going soft on socialism and are already promoting the social gospel. Yes. They're promoting socialistic ideas. You know this. You deal with it on your program. Yeah. The Southern Baptist Convention is taking a very, very soft stand on illegal immigration. Yeah. A soft stand, at least at the leadership level, a soft stand on the LGBTQ plus yep. movement. Yes. I mean, these guys are still supposed to be the stalwarts. Let me read you a quote from a historian in 1860. His name was John Thornton. And so we're talking a century after, pretty much, the War of Independence. He says, the fathers of the republic did not divorce politics and religion, but they denounced the separation as ungodly. I like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. That's the thing. And that's why I think that what you're saying here, Dan, and why I think your book is so important for the modern preacher to read and for the modern layman to read. And I, I just can't emphasize this enough, because if we don't understand history and we don't understand how our Christian forebears gave us this country by the grace of God, then we will not fight to preserve it for our ancestors if that time ever came about. And that's what really concerns me. But bigger than that, as you've mentioned, Dan, so well said, it's about preaching the whole counsel of God. You don't pick and yeah. choose what is easy and what is you know, non-controversial at a time when it is so vital for the whole counsel of God to be preached. And that's why I just encourage people to read your book and, and get it for themselves and school yourself. Bringing Back the Black-Robed Regiment by Pastor Dan Fisher. And you can check out his website at Dan Fisher, B-R-R 
Com. And Dan, so good to have you here. Thank you for the history lesson and for a wonderful presentation. It was just great to have you here. Oh, thank you, Janet. It's been an honor to be with you. Well, thank you. God bless you and keep up the good work. I really appreciate it, Dan. This hour of Janet Mefford today brought to you by Thinking Man Films, Patterns of Evidence, The Moses Controversy, a new documentary seeking evidence that Moses wrote the first books of the Bible, Patterns of Evidence, The Moses Controversy, in theaters March 14th, 16th, and 19th only. We'll see you next time on Janet Mefford Today.